Hello and welcome to the October 2018 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm here joined by CJ McKinney, um, Deputy Editor at Free Movement, and we are having another month at our, uh, having another go at our conversational style of podcast, which we got some quite good feedback on last week and hopefully we'll get, we'll get better at over time as well. So in October, we posted over 40 articles on the blog, which is an awful lot. Realistically, we can't cover all of that today. So we're going to sort of filter that a bit for you and cover some of the most important stuff, starting with a very important Supreme Court judgment on children. So we're going to start with that. We're going to cover some of the changes to the immigration rules as well. Um, and then if you cover several other cases, some things on trafficking, asylum, um, Article 8. Um, so we've got quite a range of different things to cover. Um, if you are enjoying the podcast and finding it useful and you want to use it for CPD, then join up as a member and head to www.freemovement.org.uk slash join. Okay, CJ, over to you. Super. Um, we'll spend a bit of time on the Supreme Court because that's most important and then try to fly through the other cases, I guess. Um, so the Supreme Court gave judgment in October in four linked cases uh, and we're calling the result KO Nigeria and others, 2018 UKSC 53. Um, and this was about removing or deporting migrants with children. Um, and there are special considerations there because the best interests of those children is a, is a factor. Um, and the law there, I think, is pretty involved. Uh, so I'm personally fairly hazy on the details of this decision. But thankfully, Colin has synthesized it um, for us on the blog. And we're saying, basically, um, when the courts or the Home Office has to consider the best interests of children in a kind of flexible, discretionary sort of way... Uh, whatever the parent might have done to get deported or removed uh, isn't relevant. Um, So even if it's a a horrible crime they've committed or whatever, that's not relevant to how you weigh up the impact on children. Um, That is my understanding. Colin, how does that differ from yours, if at all? Yeah, that's pretty good, actually, CJ. That's pretty good. Part of the problem with this was that um, there'd been a conflict in the upper tribunal about what the meaning of unduly harsh was in this context, where you're looking at the impact on the parent and also the the, the child um, of the immigration rules and also um, uh, what we call the statutory considerations in part um, 117B and 117C of the the Nationality Immigration Asylum Act 2002. And it was unhelpful that you've got different upper tribunal judges deciding different things on the same words. That was then not helped really by the Court of Appeal where... Um, uh, the Court of Appeal initially in one judgment took a pretty hardline approach and agreed with one of the upper tribunal judges but then different division of the Court of Appeal said well we're bound by that we're going to follow it but we don't necessarily agree with this actually so it was sort of inevitable that this one was going to go up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has happily for children and parents of children um, come down in favour of the um, assessment of these words being all about the impact on the kids, basically, rather than factoring in the behaviour of the parents. And it, it's, it's often the case with these Supreme Court cases. When you look at the reasoning of the Supreme Court, it kind of oh, it looks, oh, well, of course that's the case. You know, it, should, it should obviously have been that. And um, it's, um, it, it sort of feels like it's a, it, it's a really obvious outcome, but obviously not so obvious for some judges in the upper tribunal and in the Court of Appeal. Well, you're, you're saying it's so you're saying it's good for for applicants because I mean that Daily Mail article that we covered uh, also in October said it was a ruling that will limit the power of lawyers to use the Human Rights Convention as a legal loophole to let offenders stay here. So the Mail, for some reason, thinks it's bad for migrants and, and children. Yeah, very happy for the Daily Mail to think that, um, <laughs> but but I'm not sure that's really the impact. I mean, there is some. 
I think there is some room for argument about some of this. So um, while the court decides that it's the assessment is all about the impact on the children, there is an um, arguably unhelpful bit where the court says, of course, the context of this is a child who doesn't have a right to be in the UK and uh, whether they should follow a parent who doesn't have a right to be in the UK. And that leaves a certain amount of wiggle room, I think, and, and room for disagreement in future um, about just how helpful the, the rest of the Supreme Court decision is going to be in this case. But certainly I, my take is that it is helpful. Um, I'm, I'm literally just uh, recording this in the afternoon and this morning I was in court in the tribunal um, with a case that really turned on exactly this issue where the upper tribunal had taken um, what we might call a narrow view of the meaning of um, unreasonable or unduly harsh mm. and had, had limited their assessment only to the impact on the child. The Home Office had then managed to get um, permission to appeal to go up to the Court of Appeal on exactly that issue. The solicitors had properly conceded because the Court of Appeal authority was against them on that. It had been gone back to the upper tribunal to be re-decided. And we got in front of the upper tribunal this morning and they just said, well, look, this is ridiculous. Um, there was no error in the first place, it turns out. We're just going to simply um, uphold the, the original decision as made which you know, was arguably a slightly generous one on the facts of the case. So I was quite relieved about that. But it, it, it does go to show that, you know, the, you, this, this is going to lead to a positive impact in, in, in at least some cases. So, so this was the real world impact of this Supreme Court decision uh, making, being a positive outcome for uh, Margaret Slocum to stay, is that? Yeah, 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 cool. yeah. Good. Yeah, uh, I, I think I, before we move on, I want the, the big takeaway here basically is that you shouldn't be punishing a child for the conduct of their parent, including their, their conduct in coming to the UK unlawfully or st overstaying in the UK unlawfully. And that's, that's the kind of big point that's made in the earlier cases of ZH Tan Tanzania and Zumbas, um, both Supreme Court decisions. And it sort of, with a bit of hindsight, um, feels like that was inevitably going to be the outcome of this KO case. But I say it wasn't, wasn't quite how we all saw it um, beforehand, perhaps. Excellent. Um, well, good to know. Uh, sounds like a positive outcome, um, although, as you say, some, some room for disagreement, um, perhaps. Um, there was another case uh, having to do with children in the Upper Tribunal um, in October. Um, now, the citation for this one is, <laughs> is, is wonderful. Um, SR Subsisting Parental Relationship, Section 117B6, Pakistan, 2018, UK, UT, 3345IAC. <laughs> so um, SR Pakistan um, for short um, and the context for this one is I suppose similar in some ways it's still about parents whose right to be in the UK is, is through their child um, if, their, if their child's British for example um, but this case was more about working out the closeness of relationship between parent and child um, obviously not all parents are as close to their children as others they might be separated um, from the child's mother or whatever it might be. Um, and Ian Halliday, who wrote about this case on the blog, says that the stronger the relationship, the stronger the case for the parent to stay, basically. Um, did you want to jump in there, Con? Yeah. I, I, first of all, um, before we go any further, my life feels immeasurably better since you had to start reading out those citations. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, but um, I, we look at the case. It's the, the problem here is that there's kind of odd, overlapping, arguably conflicting-looking set of legislation where you've got the immigration rules saying one thing with one type of test, and then you've got the um, statutory um, considerations in Section 117B, C, 
um, saying something that looks rather different. And this is the tribunal trying and, you know, I think Ian rightly says succeeding, actually, in making some sort of method of the, of the statutory madness. So um, if we just sort of skip to the end of this one, um, I think Ian's summary at the, at the conclusion is a, is a really useful one. And he splits it into three sort of situations. First of all, if it's just in your child's best interest for you to stay in the UK, that's a good starting point. It's something that has to be considered, but it's not determinative and it doesn't necessarily lead to a grant of a visa. The second situation is if you've got a genuine and subsisting relationship with your child and it wouldn't be reasonable using the new KO Supreme Court um, interpretation of reasonable for him, her to leave the UK, in which case you get granted a 2.5 year visa on the 10 year route settlement. And then this is where the tribunal sort of certainly helped. I think it's not often you hear me saying this, but help my understanding of how these rules work. Um, you've got the third situation, which is if you are playing an active role in your child's upbringing and you've got direct access or sole responsibility, then you're granted a 2.5-year visa, but on the five-year route to settlement, which is uh, you know, considerable improvement on the 10-year route settlement, not least you know, in terms of certainty, but also the application fees that you've got to pay along the road as well. And the tribunal here is saying that there is a difference between genuine and subsisting parental relationship and playing an active role in your child's upbringing. And just because you've got one doesn't necessarily mean you've got the other. Playing an active role in upbringing is a sort of higher test and you've got to be much more actively involved. And on the facts of this case where I think it was a father who had uh, fortnightly three hours of contact, that didn't amount to playing an active role in the child's upbringing because in that case it was the mother who was making all of the key decisions in the child's life. But it did amount to a genuine and subsisting parental relationship. Um, so um, I think that would have put that particular case on the uh, 2.5-year visa, but on the 10-year route settlement. Right. So, yeah, even if you're not ticking the box for active role in the child's upbringing, you can still uh, have a go at genuine and subsisting relationship. Um, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Um, is that a big? How would you sort of use that case in practice? Um, it's a good question. Uh, as a barrister, it's the sort of thing that I'm not necessarily immediately conscious of because you kind of you're just trying to fit your client into one of these categories. But in fact, it's a good example of where that's not necessarily the right approach, frankly. And you know, looking at what your client gets out of it, whether it's on the five-year route settlement or the ten-year route settlement, is actually really important. Great. Um, so next up, there was uh, another statement of changes to the immigration rules um, that was laid at the end of October and it kicked in at the start of November. Um, and Nath Gabikpi, um, as usual, did a great summary of the changes. She says um, they're generally for the better, I think, Colin. Yeah, and it's not often we can say that. Now, I'm not going to try and do a sort of full summary or run through of all of this because it's just a bit too much. But the, the themes are, are really quite positive ones on the whole. And um, in particular, we've got new rules on validity of applications, which are designed to make online applications work better. And lawyers are going to need to have quite a close look at those rules. Nath's put a really good summary up on the, the blog post. So that is, generally speaking, pretty good news. Um, for example, just a couple of specific things. Um, there's no need any longer to submit passport size photos, which has it's a requirement has been redundant for some time. Um, also, your ID will be returned immediately in most cases rather than the Home Office hanging on to it, which has been incredibly um, awkward for a lot of people. And also the um, Home Office can now treat an invalid application as a valid one in some circumstances. And it's basically the Home Office is now, I, th I think we can see some positive impact from the 
fuss that was made of how belligerently awful the Home Office was by EU citizens who just didn't want to be subjected to this kind of mm. um, awful process. And the you know the settled states application process is very very different to a conventional application immigration application, and we're seeing some of that now coming back into the conventional immigration application process which is you know a really good thing basically and it it is starting to make that process look less belligerently and horribly difficult and it's not quite as designed as it was to actually deliberately trip people up in the same way that it was yeah it just seems like a small bit of flexibility and common sense the way you would sort of have expected it to operate all along i suppose Ah, well, the, the word flexibility is quite important. One of the ah. things I didn't mention just now is there is a, you know, forgive my sort of double use of the word flexible here, but there's a much more flexible, evidential flexibility policy that's been introduced, which is, is something that's very welcome. Um, that's something where the, the Home Office seemed to be introducing a dose of common sense with the points-based system, but then kind of gradually rolled back on that and made it more and more rigid. Um, but we're seeing the Home Office going back on that and saying, actually, you know, we are going to be more flexible about this. If you haven't submitted all the right documents, we might ask you for more. We're not imposing limits on the way that we ask you or what we might ask you for. And that's that's all really very welcome indeed. Excellent. Um, that's the procedural stuff. Was there anything else in the statement of the changes we need to highlight? There's a couple of things. There's the Calais leave stuff, which I'm not going to cover, which is uh, for a a fairly narrow but important group of children. And then there's also a few changes to the EU settled status scheme. So we've got the second phase of the pilot being rolled out and the rules have been um, adjusted slightly to reflect that and the new people who can apply. So that's it. Just quickly in summary, staff in higher education, health and social sectors across the UK and vulnerable individuals supported by specific local authorities and community groups. Um, so they can now apply under the settled status scheme. This uh, for the EU citizens, just to um, yeah, exactly. spell it out. Yeah, the, the post-Brexit yeah. scheme. Yeah, and and if they succeed in their application, then they'll be granted indefinite leave to remain. Um, the rules also introduce a right of administrative review, um, which is to be welcomed, and also improve the rights of surrendering family members. And as you said earlier, that all takes effect on on the first of November. Fantastic. Um, Excellent. Uh, again, uh, fairly positive stuff. Um, talking of uh, Surinder Singh, um, I think we want to uh, take a whistle-stop tour through some other case law um, that uh, people, I suppose, should be aware of, but won't necessarily detain us too long. Um, and the first of them is um, to do with Surinder Singh, um, Secretary of State for the Home Department and Christie, 2018 EWCA Civ 2378. Um, what, was the, what was the issue here? It's a bizarre one. It takes a while of reading the determination, frankly, or the judgment here um, to actually understand what was going on. But it was the Home Office being really hostile and unnecessarily hostile to uh, a Surinder Singh family member. And um, eventually sort of, it dawns on you what's going on here, which is that um, the family member here, um, Ms. Christie, had her own independent immigration status um, while living with her UK sponsor before returning to the UK under Surinder Singh. She had her own independent immigration status in Poland. Yeah, exactly. So she basically qualified under Polish immigration law. I I can't remember what basis, but she was there on her own, effectively, without any kind of direct EU law link to the the UK citizen. And the Home Office tried to argue, rather bizarrely in my view, that um, that didn't work for Surinder Singh and that in order to make use of Surinder Singh, she would have to have a dependent status on the British citizen which was essentially basically a residence card linked to the British citizen sponsor. And the Court of Appeal really doesn't seem very impressed by that argument and, and says it's a load of nonsense. 
and, and, and that's the end, really. So it was a kind of an attempt to just create an obstacle to Surinder Singh rights for no particularly obvious reason. It wasn't a very good attempt by the Home Office. You know, occasionally their arguments have got, you can see they've got some legal arguability to it, but it's hard to see that this would ever have succeeded. And it just looks like a sort of deliberate hostility on the part of the Home Office to Surinder Singh rights. Yeah, well, not necessarily a shock, but good to see it being uh, given the treatment it deserves in the Court of Appeal. Um, good. Uh, detention. Um, the case of Hamati and others, 2018 EWCA Civ 2122. This was a case um, that made the newspapers, actually, um, to do with unlawful detention of asylum seekers. Um, and it was, uh, as well as being sort of notorious, it was unusual legally insofar as the Court of Appeal was split uh, two to one, which we don't see very often um, in immigration cases necessarily. Um, Lord Justice Sales was uh, supporting the Home Office as per usual, perhaps, um, but he was in the minority and he was uh, very unhappy about it, uh, grumbling through the judgment. Um, what did the majority say? We sh- maybe we need to focus on that. Yeah, the, the, the sales judgment's worth reading. It's got, what should we say, rant-like qualities to it, but um, ultimately doesn't really matter because he's in the minority. The others, the others disagree. And essentially, this is about um, anyone who is detained for the purposes of removal under the Dublin Three regulation between 1st of January 2014 and the 15th of March 2017. And basically, if they were detained during that time, they were probably detained unlawfully, um, falsely imprisoned, and therefore they've probably got a case for damages. Now, we don't at this point know um, whether it, what, what sort of scale they might be looking at in terms of how much um, compensation they might be able to claim for damages. It'd be interesting to see, and I think it'll probably end up being public knowledge, what these particular claimants get. Um, and that would be sort of useful information for somebody thinking about bringing a claim, you know, whether it's proportionately worthwhile and so on. Excellent. Um, good good for people to know if they have clients who were detained under Dublin 3 in that period. Hamati is the case. Um, next case, SW and Secretary of State 2018 EWHC 2684 admin. Uh, so the High Court. Um, the headline on the blog post we had about this, um, which I think Alex wrote, was failure to carry out proper medical assessment makes detention unlawful, which seems like a pretty good summary to me. Um, anything to add, Carl? <laughs> Not a lot. I mean, the, the facts were pretty awful, and they often are with these kind of cases involving um, failure to, to conduct a medical assessment. So somebody who was pretty obviously vulnerable and obviously had a, a good case um, that she'd been trafficked in the past. She even asked the Home Office to be referred to, to what's called the National Referral Mechanism for Victims of Trafficking. Um, the immigration officer didn't believe her claim and refused to make the referral, which is just almost unbelievable. Mm. Um, she then didn't get the Rule 35 report that she was entitled to when she arrived. She did see a GP, I think, at one point, but there was no proper report. And she ended up being detained for about a month, basically, as a result of this kind of series of failures on the part of the Home Office. Um, so it's a pretty sad case. Um, but, um, you know, she's entitled to compensation for that, ultimately. Good to hear. Uh, excellent. Turning to asylum, uh, we have an upper tribunal case, uh, PA protection claim, respondents inquiries, bias, 2018 UKUT 337 IAC. Um, a slightly niche issue, perhaps, um, about what the Home Office can do by way of like making inquiries in a asylum seeker's home country um, without the asylum seeker consenting to those inquiries being made. Um, is, it, is it niche, Con, or is it maybe it's maybe this happens all the time and it's important? 
It's it's pretty niche, frankly. It's pretty niche. I mean, you don't often see the Home Office going to the effort that they did in this case, where they actually sent somebody um, from the High Commission to visit a police station. Um, the controversial bit, really, here is that they actually handed over the um, FIR number, and FIR is a first instance report. You get them in um, Pakistan and Bangladesh. And um, that would potentially have led the um, authorities to identify who they were talking about here. Anyway, they, they handed over this reference. Um, police couldn't find any records. Uh, then allowed the High Commission staff to have a look for themselves as well, rather <laughs> remarkably. Um, so they had a good dig through the records, couldn't find what they were looking for, and wrote up a report and sent it to the tribunal. And uh, it was argued that this breached the immigration rules and also, in fact, I think the um, 99 Immigration Act in basically disclosing the fact of the asylum claim. Um, and then there was an argument about whether it did breach that and also what the consequences would be. And this is a decision by President Lane where he basically says it didn't breach the terms of the immigration rules because um, it did not expose the appellant or their family to any particular danger in this case. It's interesting to think about whether consent is necessary in this kind of post-GDPR age, because the idea of doing something with somebody's information without their consent is, is now increasingly a controversial one. That's exactly what the Home Office did here. I don't think they even asked for consent. It's not that you know they asked and it was refused. It's just they didn't even ask. Um, and then finally, before we move on from this one, there's um, yet another accusation of bias in this case. We've had a run of these cases recently, and um, one senses that the... Uh, upper echelons of the upper tribunal are getting a little frustrated with it. So this is um, uh, an allegation, sorry, interrupting your comment, an accusation of bias against the, the original first-tier tribunal judge, the appellant was saying he was biased against me, is that it? Yeah, exactly, and had said something during the hearing or behaved in a certain way that indicated that the judge wasn't impartial. And um, there's, there's yet, I mean, we've had several um, cases where guidance has been given, yet more guidance is given in this case. So, you know, if you're facing one of these situations, they do sometimes arise, then have a look at the, um, the head note. But one of the, the key takeaways here is that a counsel or an advocate really has to raise this with the judge at the earliest opportunity when it happens, rather than kind of save it up for grounds of appeal later or something like that. Yeah, useful to, useful to know. Um, okay, another asylum case we have is S. Guinea, uh, 2018 EWCA Civ. 2234. This held that the standard of proof for determining a statelessness application is the normal civil standard, um, that is, the balance of probabilities. Uh, yeah, and there's not much for us to say on this one, because UNHCR basically um, intervened to suggest otherwise, and that the, the Refugee Convention standard of reasonable degree of likelihood or real risk ought to be applied in statelessness situations, and basically the, the Court of Appeal disagrees. And the, the one extra thing to say I think other than that is that um, the Court of Appeal arguably slightly optimistically says look there is a process to follow in a statelessness case there are steps that the applicant has to take in order to establish that they are stateless the Secretary of State makes it clear that they will um, assist the applicant and undertake research on his or her behalf allegedly I'm not sure it ever actually happens in practice and um, the, the, the judge giving um, the judgment here, Lord Justice Kitchen, says there is therefore no need to speculate as to whether a person is or is not stateless. That person's status can be ascertained. I'm not sure that's frankly all that true, in fact, but um, you know, their position is that you just need to, to try harder, basically, and it's not really a question of standard of proof. It's something that you can discover one way or the other. Hmm. Fair enough. Um, all right, well, we will stick with asylum 
Um, but take a take a welcome break, possibly from case law. Um, we did a bit of research that we want to highlight um, for people, um, and it was the issue of what the authorities are calling safe return reviews. Um, so this was a process brought in about eighteen months ago now, where the Home Office started saying that people recognised as refugees would no longer get automatic settlement after the normal five years on basically a refugee visa. Um, instead, they would start reviewing everyone's file after the five years were up and see whether it was safe for them to go home now. Um, and that, I think, caused huge anxiety for people. Um, but Colin, you dug out the actual hard numbers using the Freedom of Information Act, and they seem to show that these reviews haven't really been happening. Yeah, I mean, certainly so far anyway. So as you say, we were all quite anxious about this change of policy at the Home Office in 2017 where it looked like, um, on the face of it, the Home Office was going to start questioning whether a refugee could be sent home at the end of their initial five-year um, period of grant. And, you know, the Refugee Convention does allow that. It, uh, it, it says that if circumstances have changed and you'd be safe if you're sent back, then you can be sent back even if you're a refugee. Um, most states, I think, don't do that to refugees. You know, after a certain number of years, they allow them to settle, and the UK does that after five years. So it was quite concerning that hey, after five years, you might have to basically prove that you're still in danger, which is going to be quite a hard thing to do. It makes it hard to get jobs and things in the meantime because your status is uncertain. And it, psychologically, it's, it's hard for you to kind of settle down and, and really um, try and make a new life for yourself. But the, the stats that they released, which were basically refusals of indefinite leave to remain to refugees, um, are very low overall. And we're talking about no more than 15 or 10 in a given year, all the way back to 2010. And as far as we can see, there's been no significant spike really yet, um, certainly in 2017. The figures we got for 2018 were incomplete, uh, January to March, and it showed around 10, although the figures are, are really a bit vague. They're saying there's a sort of uh, margin of error here in these figures. Um, but it doesn't look like that. You know, the number of refusals has shot up yet, at least. And yeah, we'll keep an eye on that. We'll do, do another request next year and, and see if that continues to be the case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it might be a time lag between when they announce the policy and when they kind of resource it. And obviously, there have been a lot of other things. Um, going on. So yeah, um, we'll keep an eye. Um, okay, let's finish our review of the month. Um, we just have two more tribunal cases, um, reported tribunal cases, presumably reported for a reason, so we ought to cover them. Uh, one is on trafficking, um, ES 2018 UKUT 335 IAC. Um, why was this one important, Carl? Well, first of all, it's by my former colleague, um, Judge Nadine Finch, and it's very nice to see a reported determination from her. And um, it's also quite an important case because it's to do with um, where a person is referred to, I mentioned this earlier, the National Referral Mechanism for Victims of Trafficking. And the Home Office concludes that they aren't a victim of trafficking. The question is, how far is the tribunal fixed with that decision by the Home Office? Can the tribunal review it? Um, are they sort of fixed with it and it's a finding of fact they can't, can't go around or whatever? Or does the tribunal have to make up its own mind? And Judge Finch here looks at um, previous authorities from the Court of Appeal saying that under the previous appeal regime, the tribunal was fixed. Looking at uh, another tribunal decision since then, um, uh, sort of basically following the same line. But then Judge Finch disagrees, basically, and says that there's been a, a change in the way that grounds of appeal work. And the tribunal just has to get, its, get on and, and decide for itself whether the person is entitled to asylum and they, of course, have to take into account what the Home Office has said, but they're not fixed with that in any meaningful sense. So it's effectively the tribunal reclaiming its jurisdiction to, to make its own decision in these trafficking cases. 
Good to see. Um, excellent. We'll finish on a fun one. Um, President Lane in the case of Thackerer, 2018 UKUT 336. Um, lots of different bits and pieces in this one, Colin. Like it's sort of there's procedure and there's human rights and there's relationships with grandparents and there's all sorts of sort of uh, as I say bits in it. Um, you wrote about it on the blog. Why did it pique your interest? Yeah, it is quite a bitty one, this one. Um, we're starting to see a few decisions now coming through from um, President Lane, who, who's you know, relatively newly in post as president. And he, he sort of starts to get the feel that he's marking his judicial territory a bit here and suggesting a slightly different approach on some issues um, to his, his predecessor, um, Judge McCloskey. So this is an example of that. And it's quite an entertainingly vexed read, shall we say. He's, he's quite grumpy about several different things here. Um, he's grumpy that permission was granted by a High Court judge in a CART judicial review, and he's grumpy with the appellant for raising certain arguments, and he's grumpy with the lawyers for, for those arguments as well. Um, it's sad to see some of the bits of the decision where he sets very little store in legal terms by the grandparent-grandchild relationship, which was one of the key arguments relied on in this case. And um, to be fair, President Lane is not doing himself any favours here because he doesn't really cite any authority and there is authority that he he could have cited the Cougathas case uh, which is arguably rather out of date arguably things have moved on government policy is you know on the face of it all in favour of the grandparent grandchild relationship in other contexts outside immigration Um, but um, the the president then goes arguably a bit too far and describes the arguments that were being made as hyperbole which it's easy to say if you're a judge and you know you, you think well this the rules aren't met what, why, why are these things being said? But for the person concerned, you know, this is actually a very important relationship to them and um, they're doing the best they can to, to, to make their case as strong as possible. So hyperbole is a pretty uh, unfortunate, I think, word in, in this sort of circumstance. The, the critical bit, really, the most interesting bit of the, the decision and the reason, as far as we can see, why it was reported is on this issue of how far a positive contribution to the community counts in a person's favour when they're relying on human rights. And um, the president says that basically bus drivers and brain surgeons should be treated the same, that judges um, under the new appeal regime don't have the same uh, ability to um, intervene in on a sort of policy level in cases as they did in the past, um, and that the public would be upset if people were treated differently. Arguably, the public would be upset if a bus driver and a brain surgeon were treated the same, actually. And I think if you start appealing to common sense um, in this kind of situation, then it's a very malleable concept. And what's common sense to one person isn't to another. So it's, it's like a dangerous route to, to go down. So the, the but, significance of the analogy is this, um, the president saying if a brain surgeon is obviously contributing a huge amount to you know saving lives um, in the community, whereas... Um, you know, a bus driver maybe isn't having that same level of impact, but that shouldn't matter for uh, human rights purposes. Is that the the idea? That that seems to be what he's saying. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of members of the public would perhaps disagree with that, actually. And, you know, if you kind of, you see a lot of petitions on behalf of people like brain surgeons, you don't see petitions on behalf of people like bus drivers. And you can see why he's saying it. And the kind of non-discrimin- mm. non-discrimination in that is, is very important. But common sense isn't a good 
uh, I, yeah, it's not a, a firm foundation for that kind of argument, frankly. But the, the, the key bit, really, is he suggests a new test for this kind of line of cases from the UE Nigeria case, also the Lama case from his, his predecessor, McCloskey. Um, and he says that the, the test is whether the removal of the person concerned will lead to an irreplaceable loss to the community of the United Kingdom or to a significant element of it, which is a pretty tough test. It's much less kind of... Uh, it's much more specific. I was going to say it's less general um, than the, the previous one. It's less flexible than the previous one. Um, so, yeah, I think he's trying to tighten things up a bit and narrow down the kind of circumstances where you can rely on that contribution to the community kind of situation. Well, as you say, trying to um, impose his um, stamp on the uh, immigration system. Um, fair enough. Uh, great. That brings us to the end of our review of the month. Um, we will be uh, back again in November.